You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So we have a wonderful opportunity. If I haven't met you yet before, if you're newer here, uh, my name is Carl. I am not the real thing. The real pastor is uh, working elsewhere today. Um, and I'm just working into the rotation to give him some opportunities to invest more time in ministry at FGCU. So I'm part of that uh, plan. And a joy and privilege it is to be a part of it too. Uh, Thrive exists for the sake of relationships, building a relationship between you and Jesus so that your relationship between you and Jesus might spread to you and the people you love. And that as it spreads from you and the people you love, it goes with others and we become community. And uh, if there's something that you can't uh, order online, it's community. It requires our presence and the presence of Christ and God in our center. And that's why Thrive exists. But uh, let's go on with the... I'm working a new system here, so let's see how it goes. Oh, it works. Cool. All right, a quick review. Where have we been? Habakkuk, legitimizing complaining to God. So uh, many Christians want to be nice, and when they feel kind of issues or concerns, don't want to complain about that. And in the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk, whoever you want to call it, uh, complaining is legitimized. It's the only prophet that I know and have found in the Old Testament that uh, is, exists because Habakkuk wants to bring a complaint to God. Every other prophetic message, God taps somebody on the shoulder and says, listen, I want you to bring a message to them. Now, now Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, and he did a lot of complaining. But he complained about what God was calling him to do and the message he was being called. Habakkuk just pops up and says, we got to talk. And starts complaining to God. So he's the first prophet to do that. And he's seldom preached on, seldom taught. He's buried as a minor prophet way back in the Old Testament with an incredibly powerful message. With three chapters, we found four messages. And the first message is, you need to know it. Do you have a complaint against God? Are you wondering? Are you mad? Are you tired? Are you exhausted? Are you confused? Bring it! Don't ignore it. God says, bring it. In the Matrix, remember that? Neo? Bring it. God wants to hear from us. And if you listen, if you review the Psalms, you'll see that they don't always have wonderful messages. Oh, God, you're full of praise. There's a lot of, where are you? What are you doing? In 38 years of ministry before I retired, there's a lot of opportunities that I had in ministering to others, in ministry to children who were suffering and dying, and funerals of loved ones, and suddenly families left in the lurch. Where I started, I said, Lord, before, before I go to this family, you're going to have to help me because I don't know what you're up to. I don't know where you were. I don't know why you were, did what you did. And the message from Habakkuk is God invites us to say, yeah, bring it. Talk to me. Though the vision delay, wait for it in this appointed time. The just shall live by faith. What we discovered in week two is complaining is legitimized. And this little, little phrase, the just shall live by faith, was buried back in Habakkuk's time, and it would, what I love about this is Habakkuk was, during all of his complaining, this is what the Lord says, the just will live by faith, 
And this little gem, this little jewel takes the focus off of Habakkuk, off of the scenarios, off the situation, and places it where it belongs, center solely on the faith that God gives to us. And so what we learn is that it launched a reformation. It launched a change in the world. We are here because Habakkuk was given this message, you just shall live by faith. And what I like about this is Habakkuk is full of questions for a guy. He's going, what, why, how, what? And God says, all right, remember, just shall live by faith and wait for it. Wait for the vision. Habakkuk couldn't have had any sense in his mind at all. What was about to happen was the Reformation. A guy named Martin Luther would initiate a Reformation that would change the world. And I speak to you not as a Lutheran, but as somebody who read Time Magazine, if you remember we saw that. Time Magazine ranked the most influential people of the last thousand years, from 1,000 to 2,000. Not an LCMS journal, but Time Magazine <laughs> said Luther was number three. Point of that is certification that God's promises will come true. Imagine now, imagine this. Imagine God trying to explain to Habakkuk, "There's going to be a Reformation in Europe." And first question Habakkuk would say, "What's Reformation? Where's Europe?" <laughs> so it gives some perspective on why God doesn't answer us, because the answers oftentimes that we would get would be the relative equivalent of trying to explain a European Reformation to Habakkuk in 600 BC. He says, how do you get there from here? Number three, we called John last week, talked about the interruption of woes interspersed with messages of light as the paradox of Jesus' suffering. Habakkuk has got this juxtaposition. He's not afraid to put right next to each verse, each proclamation, this incredible, oh, things are going to be horrible. My blessing is going to be in the middle of it. To the point where you're left going, what? what? How is that possible? And today, experiencing the grace of God through it all, no matter what. As part of this plan, I want you to kind of know a story, and that's where I get my confidence. And it's not inside of me, and that's the beauty of it. So I'm going to go way back to 1968. Yes, I was alive in 1968. I was in eighth grade. I was being confirmed. This is the era of confirmation in the Lutheran Church where um, you wore the gowns, remember the, the white gowns? And I think I had on a bow tie that my mom made me wear. And, I was confirmed. We came up to the altar, and I was confirmed. Now, the backstory to that is that um, since first grade, I'd always wanted to become a pastor. Now, nobody believed it. <laughs> I've got an aunt who's, well, she's gone on now, but she, even after I was in the ministry for decades, didn't believe it. But that's another story altogether. So it was a cute thing to say, but what happened at the confirmation is a unique experience. And I was receiving a blessing from the pastor, and he provided for me a special blessing when he put his hand on me and said, may your calling in the ministry come true. What happened to me is difficult to explain, but from that point in time, 
I knew, knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was already going to be in the ministry, that it was already done. That it was great. Now, I said to go through high school, college, seminary, calling. And I was in trouble a lot in high school, a little bit in college. But it was already done. Then I would later learn when I studied at seminary that it's something called the pluperfect. The pluperfect speaks of the future as though it's already happened in the past, which is really weird for us, but it's no big deal for God because God exists outside of space and time. So there is no time in eternity or in heaven, so when God speaks it, it then enters space and time, and that's where it gets confusing, but it's already done. The reason why that's important and I want us to understand that is because there will be things that you're struggling with right now, issues of faith and spirit and relationship, things with your health and body. And bring it to God because it's already done. Do you still have to go through the processes? Do we still have to walk together? Do we still have to wonder? Do we still get exhausted and tired together? Yes. But what the prophet Habakkuk helps us understand is what the blessing that I received in my confirmation, it's already done. So what we find today is, let's get back to that. Hello. There it is, Psalm of Praise. Habakkuk actually ends this, sorry. So let's get back to what, what Habakkuk's doing. Habakkuk first complaint comes before God and says, this place is a mess. <laughs> the evil are getting away with all kind of stuff. Things are out of control. We need to do something about it. And God says, in essence, he says, I am going to do something about it. I'm bringing Babylon, and they're going to wipe you out. And going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Babylon, they're worse than us. God says, yeah, yeah. He says, I know they're worse than you. And then it goes on to list all the strengths that Babylon leans on, their horses and their might and their armor and their pride and their arrogance. He goes, I know, I know, I know Babylon. Habakkuk listens to God, comes back and says, okay, and ends with a psalm of praise. I want you to see that the last thing you would expect Habakkuk to do is offer a psalm of praise. It would be, Oh, this is going to suck. <laughs> Can I say that? Is that? Uh... Let's edit that out for the. You know. That's what would, would be the normal course of what you would expect somebody to say when you got the news that he did. How does Habakkuk end with a psalm of praise? I would offer it to you, he ends up with a psalm of praise because he gets this sense oh, I get it. God's plan is already affected, already done. And the same is true for you and for me. It's already done. So you can offer a psalm of praise. Here's the text that we're going to take a look at from Habakkuk 3.16. Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly 
for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So before I go much further, it's going to be really important to keep in mind that Habakkuk experiences real emotional fear and dread at what's about to happen. So this critical understanding that the emotional content of that is still totally and completely impact and normal. This is going to be critical because as you and I go through struggles, as we bring our complaints to God, as we walk through life's suffering, it's going to be important for us to recognize that it doesn't necessarily do away with the angst that boils within the trouble, the shaking, the angst, the anxieties, the pain. But there's something beyond them that's more critical. He says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine. For the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. For there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Would you do me a favor and would you read that aloud with me? Try it. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Would you please pray with me? Father God, as we review your marvelous book from Habakkuk and the conversation there, Give us the opportunity for your spirit to reach into our lives and give us this, not just as a word lifted from a page, but as a confession of our faith and the very essence of our soul. Let nothing tear us away from the hope that lies in you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John normally prays at the end of his sermon, so if you're hoping that was the end, we're a long way from it. Just changing it. Just to, just to adjust expectations a bit. So one of the things that we have to do is we have to separate out what Habakkuk was going through from this. So Habakkuk was not being Pollyannish. You guys familiar with Pollyanna? Pollyanna, oh, you're not. Oh, you need to be. It, Pollyanna is one of these characters, I don't know, nine or 12 books. It's just a whole series of them, I forget. And... Um, uh, her point in life is, is she's been taught or she's trying to see uh, the gladness in everything. It's uh, called the gladness in everything, the glad days, the glad ways. Look for the gladness in everything or something like that. It's one of those phrases. It's sort of a smile your way through optimism kind of thing. And it, this is not Habakkuk inviting us to be optimistic and be those Christians who put on a smile. We're happy no matter what God's leading us to do. So the very opposite is true. Habakkuk would say, my body is melting away. My bones are struggling. My mind is confused. And the psalmists talk about all kind of phenomena of taking their enemies and banging their head against a rock. Bring it, God says. Bring it. Don't hide it. Don't, don't cover it with a pretty Pollyannish smile. Don't pretend you get it. You don't get it. Bring it to me. This isn't about being happy. 
It's about being with me. Man, there's a world of difference. Let's kind of take a really high-speed uh, high look at the review of the Bible's response to suffering. Suffering is introduced in Genesis 1 to 3. First of all, God speaks existence into being. And uh, then at the pinnacle, the in his image creation of male and female, Adam and Eve goes on. And what you have there is God at the center. And what happens in the fall is it's not about the apple. It's about exchanging the center. So it's like taking the nucleus out of a cell. I don't know a lot about cellular biology, but the nucleus runs the cell. So if you can imagine, and I don't know how this would look or if it's even possible, just to find a cell, take, pop the nucleus out, take it away, I don't know, what you have left ain't going to work. It's, it's going to die and fall apart. That's what happened in the fall. Is What happened was their temptation was to put themselves in the center. And when that happened, everything fell apart. It was a systemic effect. So you, the, the center was removed. God was removed, which is interesting because if you take a look in the book of Revelation about the images and the stories of the book of Revelation, God is back at the center. He is back where he belongs, and everything fits. You put the center in, and bam, it all comes together. Take the center and the DNA out, and bam, it all goes away. So suffering has to do with where God is and the fact that he was no longer the center. Number two, okay, get used to this. Okay. I know that my Redeemer lives, John 19.25. I'm sorry, it's Job 19.25. So the, if you're familiar with the story of Job, it is probably the accounting, a dramatic version of some of the worst suffering exists. God allows Satan to take away his wealth, his well-being, his family, and then lastly, his wife. Job has three friends settled down with him, and they're trying to figure out, Job, what did you do? Is God mad at you? How did this go wrong? What's going on? And so they wrestle together with this throughout the book of Job. So Job gets, he gets sores on his body. It just, he can't get any lower. He's like, oh, Job, it's a hard book to read. By the way, it's the oldest book in the Old Testament, which is interesting, not Genesis, but Job. So the, the question of suffering and pain and sorrow is as old as Job, the first book. It's just not chronologically placed anyway. If you've gone to Easter services ever before, if you've grown up a Christian, you know that one of the, this is one of the classic Easter hymns. I know that my reading... I won't sing anymore, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it's an uplifting... So you would think this hymn comes from Psalm 139, a psalm of praise. It doesn't. It comes from the center of the most dreary, worst suffering, dramatic issues that are found in the Bible and the oldest book that exists. What does he say in the middle of that? Job goes, I know that my Redeemer lives. There it is. He knows it. Remember the way I stood up from confirmation? I knew it was done. 
I was still going to have to study, which really hurt, but I knew it was done. Job goes, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, I shall stand upon him. In my flesh, I will see God. He gave us a hint of the resurrection. When did he give it? In the midst of suffering and sorrow and friends going, oh, Job, you're in rough shape. In the midst of questions and wondering, God interjects this incredible gift. I know that my Redeemer lives. Another one, next one. Good. I'll, I'll just let you. <laughs> Luke 13, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So the question of suffering is alive in the New Testament as well. And um, Jesus points out two incidences. One is where Pilate, um, in some incident, we're only vaguely aware of historically, um, trapped some zealots behind the altar and when their blood was mixed with the sacrifices. Or there was a tower that was being built and it collapsed. Boom! Killed some people. And so Jesus steps out and says, look, look, they weren't any worse than anybody else. This wasn't God going to get them. This is the nature of fallen creation. And he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus uses this phenomena to say it serves as a reminder that this world is going to Go down the twos. It's not going to work. Next one is the same kind of question. John chapter 9. It was not that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. John chapter 9 is the story of the man born blind, and Jesus heals him. And when they come across him, the disciples, in typical fashion, are looking to blame somebody. Who's to blame for all this? They don't have this understanding of the systemic nature of sin that... The DNA, which is God, has been removed, so the whole thing is a mess. They're trying to figure out, it must be, must be his parents. It's been his parents sinned. She says, no, no, you're missing the point here. Not that he sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That God would take something as, blind, as, as awful and as debilitating as blindness and shed light for centuries. So in each of these cases, what we find is that in the midst of chaos, God interjects incredibly, incredible, powerful, wonderful light. Let me ask you a question. Next slide. Are we circumstance-driven or compelled by God's grace regardless of circumstance? Which do you want somebody to say to you? I love you if I love you when or I love you. Can you feel the difference? So what we find is that the prophet Habakkuk and many other places in scripture give us this understanding, this sense of calling. God isn't if or when. God is I love you. Through it all, through anything, through the midst of everything, I love you. You don't have to infer God's grace. We'll often infer God's grace by good stuff that happens. So you get a promotion or do well and get into the master's program or move on in some successful way and you go, 
God is good all the time. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing to say, but we typically then infer God's goodness based on his activity with our lives as we perceive it should go. See the so what we what that is it's it's and the heart of the thing and most of all when we say it, the the heart of it is we are looking to give God the glory and I appreciate that but there's a subtlety underneath it that says we're giving God the glory because we've perceived that what He did for us was what is a good thing and. What God is saying through Habakkuk and many of the prophets is, no, I love you through good and through bad. As a matter of fact, through some of the evil, I make the best, biggest, brightest things come and happen. So let me give you some stories about how this happens. The story of 1851 English missionary Alan Gardner, shipwrecked. Now, this is a horrid story. He he was... uh, in 1851, off to the coast of South America, some of the roughest waters in the world, and uh, his, he was shipwrecked. And he was studying to become a pastor. He wasn't yet a full-blown, full-blown pastor, and uh, kept a journal every day of what happened after in the island after they were shipwrecked. And uh, what happened over the course of a year is they died off one by one, the whole ship, the whole crew. And for whatever reason, he was the last. So here this man is, studying for the ministry, shipwrecked, the last to survive, and he finishes with a psalm of praise. Thankful to God for his presence through it all. Huh. Are you familiar with Horatio Spafford, the story, It Is Well With My Soul? Isn't that a fun story? If you're not, it's really very interesting. He lived during, in Chicago as a pretty wealthy lawyer. He was doing very well for himself, uh, but lost in the midst of all that a four-year-old son. I think it was to smallpox, but I'm not sure. That was also the year of the Chicago fire. (laughs) And he lost much personal property and wealth in the Chicago fire. They're pulling their lives back together again, and his wife and three daughters, or four, I can't remember which, were going to sail to England. He was going to meet up with them later while he finished pulling together some business after the Chicago fire. That ship ran into another one in the middle of the Atlantic and sank. His wife survived in a semi-conscious state, floating on a piece of wood, found days later. All three kids, or four girls, died. He was notified. He then went across to join his wife in England, and the captain called him and said, this is the place where the shipwreck occurred and where your daughters were buried at sea. There, he wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. Huh. 
I'm not going to sing it for you. It would ruin everything. <laughs> See, this isn't Pollyann talking. This is an optimism. There's something bigger, something stronger, something more powerful. Modern day story. I introduced him two weeks ago when I preached here. This is Matt Kell. Uh, Matt Kell and I became friends when I took the call to St. John in Rochester, Michigan, not too far from John's hometown there in Frankfurt, just south. It's a large congregation, worshipped over a thousand, and big school, so it was a big whole thing like going on like that. And Matt and I became good friends. We had the same sort of warped sense of humor, and uh, we both thought we were better in basketball than we were. And, <laughs> So we played on the Saturday league. So we had a good time together. Matt and I were good. It's in there that Matt told me that uh, his dad had recently died of uh, a genetically driven cancer that uh, was relevant to his family. They were missing a certain protein, I think it was. And uh, his grandpa, who was age 77, his dad, who was age 67, um, had both contracts the disease and just once they once it began or manifested itself it just pushed right through their body. Matt at age 37 found a lump in his leg and it was the first sign of that cancer that they knew had been wandering through their family. So from the very beginning Matt and I would search and go why? I ministered to him as a pastor and as a good friend, and we wrestled with it together. And I said, we are not going to take this lightly. We're not going to just absolutely oh, whatever God wants, because I went to God a number of times and said, don't do it. You know why? Look at those boys. I said, look at you guys. A grandparent's heart, looking at that. God, this guy's a great dad. Don't, don't. Don't do this. What are you thinking? Matt is full in. He's all in with you. God, don't let this happen. He did. You need to picture Matt and I kind of wrestling things together as a disease. His, his face is kind of sunken by this. He's just a little a few days from death in this picture. As uh, he do this, he would say, uh, here's the prayer that we came up with together. And you got a picture of me sitting on his living room floor, leaning against his couch with my Bible propped up in my lap, with my knees pushed up, Matt laying down, recovering from one more treatment of this or that or one more issue. And he said, uh, I'm going to pray this prayer from now on. Lord, I don't want to die. I don't know why you allowed this or how. But if my calling is to die, for my last breath, I will give you the glory. Matt died on Christmas Day. Was that a gift or the trauma? The associate pastor I was working with at the time at St. John was preaching at that service. We had multiple services, so we had multiple preachers. He preached up to him, and Matt had come to church 
on Christmas Eve early. And Luke walked past him and said, God bless you, Matt. And Matt's words to Luke were, he has. He really has. Where does that come from? Habakkuk can tell us. Horatio Spafford could tell us and do that. Matt died, and it was a big, it's a big sanctuary there at St. John. It holds 660 people. 880 attended the funeral. The line for the cemetery, one of those funerals that went on, went on for miles. He was had born and raised in that area. He was worked for one of the local stations, NBC, CBS, I can't remember which, and uh, was a big shot executive for them, had all kind of connections. And he said, there will be one thing that we talk about, one thing only at my funeral. That is Jesus Christ. Hmm. And we did. What happened? Matt died, and there's a much longer story that we're going to get into now, and uh, a book was written called The Color of Rain by Gina and Mike Spain that detailed out the story of how Matt died and the essentially Habakkuk-style praise that Matt offered in the midst of his disease. That book unashamedly and unabashedly put Jesus Christ in the center of the core of it, became a New York Times bestseller. The authors, Mike and Gina, were on Good Morning America. I know, because I watched it and went, that's Mike and Gina! And their message is always the same. They went ahead and then Hallmark, oh, we'll go back, go back. Hallmark then picked up the book and worked out a book deal for a movie called The Color of Rain. So Matt's confession, right, was very much like Habakkuk. It's like, I don't get this. We wrestle with this together, but I'm going to praise you no matter what turns into a book, which is a national bestseller, turns into a movie to proclaim the same phenomenon. Now, now, granted, if you watch the movie, it's a little bit careful here. Hallmarkish. Yeah. And I gotta be careful. My you know, my mom loves Hallmark and she can she can watch the Hallmark Christmas shows over and over, and she may be watching and listening. I know, Mom. Enjoy your Mom. But it was a bit Hallmark. But the message got through what was going on. I, just as an aside, um, I used to have a personality, but I sold it. Um, but I signed it over to Hallmark. This is. This is the best, there's, there's a character in there, because I ministered to Matt for those five years, there's a character in there named Pastor Carl. And uh, I could not find a uh, facial picture of him. This is the closest I could find. Uh, but, and that's the Michael Spain character in the movie, and that's the guy playing me. And he's, what I think Michael Spain is looking at him going, uh, I don't know why they didn't use Carl. He's better looking than you. <laughs> but. That's just my interpretation. I don't, I don't, I don't know what they, they really did. 
But Mary Louise agreed that I was better looking. <laughs> Pastor Carl. This is the family. That's the combination of both families together. That's the made-for-TV family. <laughs> it's just so funny as we were walking through. This is really weird. The made-for-TV family and the real family getting together. There's no need to separate them out. But five kids and Mike and Gina and five actors and Mike and Gina. What's, what is a little bit stunning, if you go to the center of the picture and look at the two women, uh, Gina is the one, let's see, to, uh, to the left and... Uh, uh, Chabert, or something Chabert, I forget the name of the actors, the one turn. Look how much they look alike. It was kind of stunning and, and, and amazing. So my point was, go back now. And picture Matt and I wrestling with stuff together. Picture me sitting on the floor, Bible open, Matt's prone across the couch. There's an intermixture of tears and laughter, lots of questions, some anger. To God, why are you letting it? How do you do this? What's going on? And what did God do? Carl, he said, in effect, it's already done. And you would not believe the if I told you. If you'd have told me that, right? And the, the answer to my prayer was, I'm going to make a Hallmark movie of this. You know, you know. <laughs> Who are you really, you know? It's the story of Habakkuk. The Color of Rain becomes Hallmark Movie Channel's highest rated original movie in network history as of 2014. Why do I bring this up? The same phenomenon, the same issue, same concern. We talked about two weeks ago how that one simple message from Habakkuk would birth a reformation. And God, Habakkuk brought his complaining to, to God. God said, I got it. I got it. It's already done. You're going to love it. Reformation is going to change the face of the world. Martin Luther is going to be the third most influential person in a thousand years. All because of what you're going through, Habakkuk. Habakkuk went away. Who are you really? <laughs> You, just, you, you can't comprehend it. You can't figure it out. In the same way, from a hallmark to a book to the witness, and it goes on. From that place forward, Gina now runs the foundation, has raised, I'm not sure how much, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars for financial assistance, emotional support, and financial navigation of those who are going through cancer. Others by the dozens continue to get blessed. Why share this story? Because it's all rooted in our four weeks together with Habakkuk. Do you have an issue or complaint? Are you wondering, what are you up to, God? Are you mad at him? Bring it! Bring your anger, bring your tears, bring your sorrow, bring your pain, bring your doubts, bring your wonderment. Bring it to him. This is an optimism. Allow him to envelop you. Allow his spirit to give you this message in the middle of your darkness. I know that my Redeemer lives. Allow him to give to you this incredible gift of faith. That there's something well beyond. That the pluperfect tense matters. Let's read it together again. 
Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Thanks be for the message of Habakkuk. Gracious God and Father, we pray that uh, you would enter the hearts and lives of those who are concerned, questioning, calling, wondering, in pain, in sorrow, confused, hurting, and draw them to you. That you would, like the prophet Habakkuk, address our complaints and issue with your grace and your power and your love. That you might miraculously, as you did with Matt Kell, as you did with Horatio Spafford, as you did with Habakkuk himself, develop a confession of faith in the midst of the striving and the questions and the doubt and the tears, that you have already worked your miracle and your plan, and that you have overcome through us. Thank you for this gift of going through Habakkuk's complaining to his marvelous confession of faith, because we, like him, want to proclaim your goodness and grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.